Hi, that's what happens. <laughs> um, how are you? I'm good. So this is for Politico or for the Wikimedia? women will podcast okay. yes. for Politico. Yes. yes, yeah. And this is like Anna gave me a question mm -hmm. to walk around and ask people. Okay. That were here. Yes. So first, what's your name and where do you work? Hi, my name is Young Kim. I'm a congressional candidate running for California's 39th congressional district. Brittany Greer. Um, I run Rosie Riveters. We're a nonprofit for girls age 4 to 14 in science, technology, engineering, and math. So what's your name first and last? Ali Brito. I have a PR company. My name is Tia Fulton. Emily Summer. And where are you right now? Uh, political Women Rule. <laughs> that Women Rule Summit is here to bring all the women together from all different walks of life, from all different industries, and having the opportunity and the platform like this to be able to network with other women. For some reason, there's a stigma attached to politics that it's stuffy and no one can relate to it. It's my second time being here, and each time I walk away empowered by the people who have spoken and also with a new kind of list of creative ideas of things I can expand and build my own organization to be better. I have always watched the videos of the summit online, and I thought since I'm now based here in DC, it would be a good opportunity to hear from a lot of female leadership, just on things we can do to move forward in our careers, in policy. This brings all of us together to be inspired. It's an engaging, inspiring event full of women who are all working to kind of better and change their communities. So it's just, it's stunning. Oh yeah. Oh, so that's a great question, actually, because one of the first things that um, we noticed when we walked in was your beautiful signage. It's very purple. It is very purple, but I love purple, so it's beautiful. Yeah, it's so purple. <laughs> it really is, but it's all shades of purple, and it comes together very beautifully. So, job well done. That's it. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Thanks no I really problem. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Happy New Year and welcome to 2020. It's a new decade and time of change. There are the small but important changes we all make, our individual goals for the year ahead, the things we want to do differently, the resolutions to inspire us to get there. But there are also big changes happening throughout culture and society. And those changes mean that leadership is changing too more women in elected office or at the helm of businesses, and many more women on their way up to the top. So, where do things go from here? And how can women keep up the momentum? At the Women Rule Summit in December, we talked about this with a diverse mix of women. We asked them to speak candidly about what it's like to be a woman in a position of power at this moment in time, and what's next for women in leadership. Today, we're bringing you one of those conversations, a live episode from the summit where I spoke with Isabella Gomez and Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the co-star and executive producer of One Day at a Time. You know, what we do, Isabella and I, we make culture. We're in the business of culture creation. And culture is entertainment, of course, but it's also really hitting at the hearts and minds of our country. Even at a time of change, their show still stands out. It's led by women, has a cast of strong female characters, and gives voice to a perspective often ignored in Hollywood. Yes, the show deals with real-world issues, immigration, racism, religion, LGBTQ rights. But Gloria Calderon-Kellett says that thinking about the show as political is kind of missing the point. Honestly, we don't, uh, we don't think the show is political. It really is, how, what is a Latinx family dealing with right now? And now, 
Here's my conversation with Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Isabella Gomez, live from the Women Rules Summit. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because we actually met back in February for an event when they were in town with another one of their co-stars. And we had a really powerful discussion, a reaction to the show where it was kind of a screening of One Day at a Time. And the feedback from the audience and the questions and how much this show was needed and people wanted to see the representation of Latinx on television, on screen, was so powerful. I immediately knew that we needed to have you here so that all of you could could hear about the show, could learn from it, and also find out what we can do to help more shows like this get on the air. So um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, One Day at a Time is a remake of the 1970s Norman Lear series that is centered now on a Cuban-American family in Los Angeles. Laura, tell us a little bit about how the show got made, because it was really a Norman Lear kind of idea. It was. Norman's producing partner, Brent Miller, had, uh, had read a study about the lack of representation for Latina women, specifically single mothers. And they had in their library of content one day at a time, which I had not seen. I had known sort of of the cultural phenomenon of Schneider, but uh, I was born that the year came out, or that the show came out. So uh, I was familiar with it in the periphery. I just wanted to really meet Norman Lear. So when they said, (laughs) (laughs) just truth be told, I wanted to sit with Norman Lear. And he's such a disarming and wonderful and compassionate human and hearing my parents' story, I'm a first-generation American. My parents are Cuban immigrants. They came in 1962. They were placed in a camp in South Florida uh, as we were figuring out what was happening with Cuba. And uh, it's really interesting to see, you know, what happened with my family, which was they were given a path to citizenship, were given an opportunity to thrive, were allowed to, uh, you know, have loans for homes, have loans to send my brother and I to school, and in one generation, I'm now writing a television show that honors them. And, uh, you know, what we do, Isabella and I, we make culture. We're in the business of culture creation. And culture is entertainment, of course, but it's also really hitting at the hearts and minds of our country. And taking a snapshot in this moment, the Latinx community, it's at an all-time low of on-screen representation. And so what that means is about 5% of what you see on television are people that look and represent us. And of those 5%, they're largely still very stereotyped characters, uh, gangbangers, drug dealers, and whatnot. And there's there's been many studies. Faviana Rodriguez is an incredible advocate and artist, and she does a talk that talks about cultural relevance and how it takes about 10 years for that to affect policy and change and the hearts and minds of the American people. And she talks specifically about Ellen DeGeneres coming out and Will and Grace and how that led to marriage equality. And I was thinking of my parents and how in 1962 they were so welcome here. And I thought, what was happening in 1952 in this country? And the number one television show was I Love Lucy where there was a Cuban American in your homes. And so there wasn't anything to fear because you felt like you knew who that, you knew who those people were. So to now fast forward to, to this time and to see how very different it is, you know, there before the grace of God go I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to this country for the opportunities it has afforded my family and I. And so as a storyteller and a content creator, it was incredibly important for me to invite y'all into my living room and to show you what a first-generation immigrant family looks like. Because kind of in keeping with Norman Lear shows, for those of you who remember, All in the Family, Jefferson's, Maude, 
series regularly deals with some pretty heavy political topics. How do you decide what topics you're going to tackle? How would you, as an actress, kind of deal with that and make sure you know you're you're being honest and representation and respectful, but also, I mean, you're pushing boundaries. You're talking about things that not a lot of shows are necessarily talking about. It's true. Do you want to take that one, or you want me to go? <laughs> well, do you want to talk about how you decide, and then I'll talk about yes, how and then how you how right. you play? Like yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Go team. Well, yes. you know, honestly, we don't uh, we don't think the show is political. It really is. How what is a Latinx family dealing with right now? Uh, you know, it's it's very disheartening for me to hear from my brother that he's at the beach with his children, and somebody tells him to go back to Mexico. Uh, and he's like, first of all, I'm not Mexican, <laughs> but don't say that to anybody. Uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult to, to see. I'm very, you know, light skinned, white passing, uh, and, uh, I, you know, master's degree and, and can speak articulately about my community, but there's a lot of people who are not in the privileged seat that I'm in. So we really just talk about things that are happening, how there's sort of an increase in, in racism in the community. Uh, and how it's uh, much more difficult. People are much more resistant to speak Spanish in public, which is so disheartening because it's such a beautiful language. And Isabel and I both speak fluently. And you know, our parents definitely have said, when you're in public, try not to do that as much, which breaks my heart because it's a, a beautiful language that we should all learn. And uh, so we we just talk about those things. The thing. And Norman was a veteran. He was. Uh, he did. He flew 52 combat missions in World War II. So he was very passionate that we have uh, veteran representation. So both Penelope and her uh, now ex-husband are both veterans, so we get to talk about some really wonderful veterans issues. And then Elena's character, Isabella plays a character, Elena Alvarez, who has become sort of a LGBTQ icon uh, because we had the uh, really the story of the longest coming out uh, that has been to date on television with this young woman. And that was really honoring my partner, Mike Royce, his daughter was coming out and we wanted to have some representation uh, from him. And, and all of these communities are vastly underrepresented. So it was a real privilege to get to tell these stories. What she said. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's exactly kind of is what Gloria said, is when people are actually writing real stories based on the truth they see around themselves, it's so easy to tap into that. Um, so there's not a ton of work, per se, that we, the actors, have to do because we know what it's like for our parents to say, maybe don't speak Spanish out in the world. And um, we know what it's like to be affected by shootings. We know what it's like to be around all of that. So it's very easy to tap into those emotions and make it really realistic, especially with a cast like the one we have where we all adore each other so much and we all care about the subjects we're talking about. Um, after every single table read, we all gather in the Alvarez living room and just have breakfast and talk about what the episode is and our different points of view, which is kind of what the show is. We have the three points of view from the three women of three different generations. And then Rita, Justina, and I will sit down and actually do that and be like, well, Rita, you as an 86, 87 year old, what do you think? And Justina, and then you know, me coming up as, I don't even know if I'm a millennial or what I am, whatever I am. <laughs> Beyond <laughs> labels. Beyond labels. Um, but really, in that sense, it's pretty easy because they write us such beautiful things to talk about. Well, talk though. So I think it's interesting because you, as she said, you become really an icon in the LGBTQ kind of world. Mm -hmm. You were telling this obviously very personal story that um, a lot of your your fans and viewers can relate to. Um, how did you approach that? 
Um, it's interesting. I was very lucky that season one we got to do it in a bubble, and I did not realize what it would mean. I also grew up doing theater, so a lot of my friends were LGBTQ, so I I never knew that it was anything different or shameful or that. Like, I had obviously a vague idea that there was a lot of hate out in the world, but within my world, there wasn't. Um, so I just made it a part of Elena, which is what it is. And I, you know, I was 17, 18 when I was starting the process of ODAD, and I knew what it was like to be 15 and be like, okay, what do I like and what am I into? Um, and Elena just happened to go the route of girls. But um, it it's so interesting, because to me, it was never a big deal, per se, until I realized how much it would mean to people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think was interesting, you talked about the political issues and so many things that families kind of are, it's it's very relatable. When you started this show, this country was in a very different political place than it is now. Yes. You know, it was before Donald Trump was president. Immigration was a hot topic, but there wasn't as much partisan rancor or there wasn't the wall in a serious way being talked about. Has the show changed because of Donald Trump? I, has the show changed? I mean, the truth is, uh, women being sexism, women being marginalized, the Latinx community being demonized, these are things that unfortunately have been going on for a long time. So, you know, we did an immigration episode in that bubble. We did episodes about Latinx stereotyping in that bubble. And we did a a story about sexism and equal pay in that Mm -hmm. bubble because those were going on before. I would say they're certainly amplified now. Uh, there are things that we have to deal with now as a result of that, but it's it's all sort of the same conversation that we're trying to have with the community about how we really want to fight to make it easier for the next generation. You alluded to this earlier, but kind of the the stereotypes that often uh, Latinx kind of roles in Hollywood, whether yeah. that's the gangbanger, that's the housekeeper. Have you tried to stay away from that as you're kind of, you know, auditioning as to try to get away from those tropes? Yes. Um, it's difficult because as an actor, you never know when your next job is coming. So right now I'm in a position of privilege where I am a series regular in a show and I get to say no. Um, and because I realize how much these narratives affect the way people view us, because it, it is true that people learn through television and movies and books. That's just what you do. So, um, for me, I don't want to represent my community that way. I don't want to be game manger girlfriend or a drug addict or any of that. And it is true that there are those people in our community, but that story has been told hundreds of times. Yeah. So if I can be a badass activist Latina, instead of being that, I will always go that route. What's the most undertold story that, th- that needs to be out there, Gloria? Oh my God, there's so many. I can't choose one, Anna. I mean, I think, I mean, I I don't wake up every morning and say like, another day in the life of a Latina woman. I don't don't even know that I wake up and think another day in the life of a woman. I think I wake up and I have to get my kids out the door to school. I have two kids. I have to try to be a supportive and loving wife to my husband. I want to be a wonderful uh, and encouraging daughter to my parents who are aging and, I think about the people I love, and I think that's what all of us, regardless of uh, how we vote, we all care about our families and we all love our families. And so for me, it's really just about putting forth, I don't know anybody in a gang, I don't, I didn't, you know, I I just- Never seen cocaine. Never, never never seen it. I don't know what it looks like. It looks like powdered sugar, I guess, I don't know. Uh, But so I am so kind of 
blindsided by how liberal Hollywood apparently has presented uh, the Latinx experience. Right. And so for me, it's about sort of correcting that. It's about showing people that we also look like this. We also sound like this. We also, and I'm first gen. My parents have thick accents uh, and came here and worked five jobs and figured it out. And uh, we were just, no one, my dad has the flag out almost every single day of the year. He's so uh, in love with what this country uh, promised him and, and he's seen the, the fruits of that. So for me, it's not just one issue. I think it's about really the totality of who we are as women and obviously female stories and stories about um, mothers and daughters and and through a Latinx lens most of the time because that's part of who I am, uh, are always going to be at the forefront of what I want to tell. All right, so the one thing I most want to know that I haven't asked, we've been talking for the past couple of days, but Rita Moreno. <laughs> yes. Tell me everything. <laughs> Incredible. In goddess, icon. Uh, you know, she's 87 years old, Rita. Uh, Man, she's, I mean, she's abounding on that set. Like, she's unreal. 20 to 30 years younger than that. Yes. She, there was one day where she had to reach something out of a cabinet, and her sweater went up, and she has abs. She also, <laughs> she wore a crop top season one. She wore a crop top half the time. Like, it's cool. like, we get, it's aggressive, Rita. We get um, it. You're gorgeous. You're hot. Cool. Then we all go do sit-ups. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's incredible. She's was an, it intimidating going on stage? I mean, now you know her. You're several seasons in, but originally. I mean, well, I, I wasn't born in the time where she was like what she became. Yeah. Um, so actually, it was something like, of course, I knew like West Side Story and whatever, but they were like, oh yeah, Rita's 87, and I hadn't seen her in TV in like a while. And so when I went in for the first table read, I was like, hello, Miss Rita, like, nice to meet you. And she's like, hello, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, like, just a ball of energy. Um, but I got to meet her as a person instead of an icon, which is so interesting. Um, and she's so lovely. And I was not intimidated at all because she is the most giving helpful person and she was the first one that you know Marcel and I were kids when we started this show and like yes I had been training for years and been in this business forever but I had never been a series regular and she was the first one to be like what do you need how, do, how can I help you come to my dressing room whenever let's do this thing so it was more encouraging than intimidating. It's so nice to hear when people are so generous even when they don't have to be. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to talk about with this show in particular is it's been basically universally critically acclaimed. But it's had a bumpy road when it comes to finding a home. Netflix canceled the comedy after three seasons, but Pop picked it up three months later. Why do you think it's had such a tough go of it? Like, I remember when we first sat down in February, it was kind of when you guys had started this whole hashtag and really getting right. people to, that there was all these fans, but kind of like almost like hidden fans that weren't speaking out about it. And all of a sudden, you really kind of started this whole social media movement. Yes. Well, I wanted to reach out to people to let them know that we were not just a Latinx show. You know, we, I grew up on the Seavers and the Huxtables and all of these shows that were white or black families. And I could see myself through the lens because they were, it was about family. And so I think that the mistake was saying that we, I think people didn't know what we were. Were we in Spanish? Also, to be frank, there is money that are put behind certain shows and we were not given a, a significant budget to put us out there in the same way as big shows like The Crown and sure. Stranger Things. And I get that, you know, there's a lot of content out there. People don't know what to watch. It's, it's like, feels like homework now to watch television. So it's, if you're not in that initial zeitgeist, you're a little bit forgotten. And so I couldn't allow 
at the time there were two Latino shows on all of television in 400, 400 shows and it was us and Jane the Virgin and then later on Vida on Stars. So there was just t too few for me to uh, let it go away without a fight. So I just really tried to engage the community and I said this is a story about family and I love when we do panels and things and people find the show and then tweet at me later, oh my gosh, I'm Irish Catholic, but your grandma is just like my grandma, or you know, I'm Russian, or I'm Chinese. It's just incredible to see how uh, the universality of the human experience and about family. So it's about family and about love, and it's about also trying to, it's also the truth of my life. My parents are you know, much more old school conservative Catholic, and I'm sort of somewhere in the middle trying to figure out uh, what I love from the from their journey, but also navigating what it is to be a parent today. And then this next generation that's teaching me because they are so fast and technology and all, it's incredible. So there's so much, it's wonderful. It's a gift to be in the middle of these two. And I feel like that's also a conversation that I'd love for this country to have, uh, a, a conversation about building bridges and and how we can find a way towards one another again. You've been in a lot of different writing, writing rooms. You've written for a lot of famous shows, been involved with them. How have you approached this writing room? Obviously the cast, um, but, but in terms of you and Mike Royce, who's your co-showrunner, mm -hmm. it feels like you're trying to have a little bit of a different experience than maybe some of your previous yes. experiences. Well, I'm really fortunate that Norman Lear and Mike Royce are both incredible uh, white male allies. These are men who have been in it when it was all just white men, and they would also like to see a change. And so they were really incredibly supportive of me, and at the beginning, when people would ask them questions, they'd say, ask Gloria. Mike was very open to it being a very inclusive room, so our room is more female than male. And uh, also, we have the reframe stamp. Our, we are a gender parity production, our whole production how many people you see on screen, men and women behind the scenes, it is all gender parity, so we have that reframe stamp. And uh, as well as our directors are mostly women and people of color, so it's You just great. kind of call BS though on the whole fact that like so many people say, oh, well there's just not a, you know, there's not a pipeline, there's not enough people that are no, doing No, they're out this. there, they're absolutely out there. <laughs> there's so many women that are crushing it right now in Hollywood, they just need to be given the opportunity to do so. And so that's really the gift of, of you know, I'd been doing this for 12 years, I wasn't a newbie when I got the chance to hold the reins on one day at a time. But I still needed these men to say, hey, you should listen to her, she's pretty great. And now I'm able to go off on my own and do you know, a, new, a new project elsewhere. But that's really by virtue of their, their love and support and encouragement. I'm gonna take a step back. The past year has been pretty amazing in Hollywood for progress in terms of women directors and actresses, still a long way to go. Um, but there's still shockingly low number of women in key decision-making roles in the industry. Yes. Gloria, you have been involved a lot with the 50-50 by 2020 initiative. Give us an update. Tell the kind of the audience who might not be as familiar with it yes. about what that is. So it really is asking Hollywood to have more gender parity. Uh, there are women that are amazing that are not being given, they're sort of hitting a glass ceiling in terms of their ability to become decision-makers. And so for us, if we're always pitching to you know, the same old white guys, that they're not gonna be as interested in stories about women, stories about people of color, as other people may be. Some of them are, but we really feel like the problems seem to always be solved when you have women in powerful positions. 
So uh, Jill Soloway and I and Elizabeth Banks and, and Constance Wu, we all went to our agency, uh, UTA, and said we really want agents to reflect what we look like. We want there to be more women and more people of color in agency positions because you are the gatekeepers that read the material and determine who is being sent out to tell story. And we also then went to the community, 50-50 by 2020, is let's try to up the numbers of women in powerful positions in, in Hollywood. And I'm very happy to say that Annenberg just reported that of the, 2000, the top 100 movies in 2019, 14% are now estimated to be women directors, which is a really big uptick. Yes. We still need more, but we're getting there. <laughs> you, I mean, that's political in one sense, but it's, you know, it's kind of the community that you're within. How do you both approach politics? Do you get involved? Do you not? We're in Washington. Obviously, most people here are involved in some way, tangentially at least, with, with politics as part of the lifeblood of this city. Yeah, I... I will be the first one in any sort of circumstance to be like, I don't know enough about this, please teach me more. Um, but I'd like to do that more privately, especially right now, there's very much in Hollywood, uh, but also everywhere else, a cancel culture, where if you say one mistake, like one bad thing or one thing ignorantly, or you said something eight years ago that you didn't mean or whatever, everything goes down the drain and you're canceled and nobody will give you work anymore, which is horrifying. Um, so it's a little scary right now, which I think is a huge issue because I think the way that we learn is by being allowed to make mistakes. And, you know, Gloria and I talk about this all the time. Like season one, I was a completely different person. And because I got to play Elena and I got to be on this show where I was like, I don't understand what's happening. And wait, there's more than one time you vote every four years. And like, what are you talking? Like I turned 18 on this show, you know? So, um, but they allowed a space where I could do that. And they, they made sure that, you know, Ariella Barrera, who's in season one, who is one of the most woke, incredible women I've ever known, was so gentle with me. Michelle Badiou, who's one of our writers, and made sure that I could learn in that way. So I do that privately. It's a little scary to do that publicly right now. I gotcha. How are you? I mean, I'm pretty public. I, I, <laughs> I'm pretty public. I, I, I really, I'm right now very invested in having conversations outside of my Hollywood bubble. So for me, I really want to engage with people that are on the other side. I want to know why they think and feel the way they do, where we can find common ground. And as a writer, I want to write about that. So for me, that's also what makes good storytelling. My storytelling is not just for liberal Latinos that live in California. My storytelling is for everyone. And I want to hold out an olive branch. I want to understand uh, why people vote the way they vote, what conversations we can have about what's happening right now in terms of my community that I do feel like is under attack for the first time since I've, uh, since in, in a big way now, it feels much more uh, dire and scary in a way that makes me worry for my children. And so I am interested in, in being more open and in talking to people because I think the one-on-one -on -one of that is what changes hearts and minds, mine as well. You have some exciting news. Uh, she recently signed with Amazon, so yes. you found a new home. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Prime members, you'll get it for free. <laughs> uh, I, one of the things that I was interesting, I was reading some of the press around that, and you, you specifically said one of the reasons why you were excited about going to Amazon was because it was a good place for women content creators. 
Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, I think that we see every year based on what's on network television. Network television is what reaches most people. So I haven't written it off because I'm, that's exciting. It's free television. It's ad supported free television that goes out to all the homes. That's interesting to me. Unfortunately, they don't seem to be as, they, it's sort of a homogenized type of storytelling that we're seeing. And it seems that all of the accolades tend to go to streamers or cable because it, they allow the creators to be a little bit more free with their storytelling. So as somebody who doesn't really like to be told what to do, and, and, you know, <laughs> Netflix was really wonderful with us when we made the show. They would only support us and allowed us to make exactly the show we wanted to make without, uh, really having a ton of notes for us. So Amazon is doing the same thing. They're just the, the people they're putting real. I mean, I'm making white man money now, y'all. <laughs> yes, queen. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like, like good, like rich white man money. Uh, so they just, they're putting their money where their mouth is. They really are. Uh, doing that with me, Jill Soloway, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who did Fleabag. Like, they are really supporting women, and it's very, very exciting. We know who's taking us out to dinner next. <laughs> Gloria. That's what Lin-Manuel said. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, you're paying for dinner next time. <laughs> with that, I just want to thank you both so much for joining us. It's been great to hear about the show and what you're doing here in Hollywood and also just telling the stories that need to be told. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 